This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M for links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, Lindsay tells her story of growing up, receiving doubt that she would ever do something meaningful with her life. Later, as an adult, she overcame these doubts and earned her doctorate in psychology from C.W. Post Long Island University. After years of real-life traumas, she turned her knowledge in psychology to authoring a book, along with a close friend as co-author, titled, 10 Steps to Finding Happy, A Guide to Permanent Satisfaction, which will be published March 20th, 2020. She has also started a podcast called The Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. Dealing with women's issues that may make us feel uncomfortable, in order to shed light on things she wishes she had dealt with when she was younger. Here is Lindsay's story. My name is Dr. Lindsay Weisner. I am a psychologist practicing in Long Island, New York. And I have been spending so much time trying to come up with the perfect story. Well, not the perfect story, like the imperfect story, but the perfect story. The reality is there, well, there are no perfect stories. And mine certainly was not. Um, I was born with six toes on my left foot, which is only relevant because my parents somehow, if you believe the narrative myth that is my life, did not realize this until they took me home from the hospital and my old Jewish grandmother asked if they had counted uh, my fingers and toes. This is particularly odd since my father is and was a doctor and a doctor at the hospital that I was delivered at. So you would think that he somehow would have noticed that. Once again, I was born imperfect and continue to be imperfect. Several years later, when I had my first serious boyfriend, who was annoyingly smart and knew everything, he asked me an interesting question. He said, well, which one of your parents has that, has a sixth toe? I said, none. And he said, it's a dominant trait. Someone has to. So when I went back and asked my mother, the answer I received was, well, I always thought I just did too much acid which is in fact an odd way to um, 
to casually view your child being bored with an extra digit. I, I think I always, I guess, felt imperfect, felt different. I was always worried about my weight because I'm a girl. And I remember the few harsh criticisms I got. In retrospect, I can only wish that I was as fat then, as fat now, rather, as I was then. When I was a junior in high school, I herniated my first disc sleeping, which is odd to wake up and not be able to walk. But apparently it happens. Uh, and so it was some sort of stress, um, like somatic emotional response. And so when it came time to apply to colleges, I had no idea where I wanted to go. I also went to a very good private school in Florida where, well, if this were 20, 30 years ago, I could give you numbers, but essentially no matter how well I did, it was not going to be considered good in this school. So I spent my first year at University of Florida, which happens to be a great school, but it was not a great school for my high school population. I transferred to be closer to my boyfriend. Yes, the narcissist who had pointed out that I, the six toes had to come from somewhere and it was either the milkman or, well, apparently the acid. So I ended up getting into Georgetown, which was fantastic because suddenly these were my people in that we all geeked out of the same intellectual nonsense, whatever that meant. And I fell in love with psychology. Specifically, I fell in love, not literally, well, not sexually anyway, with this one psychology professor. His name is Professor Sabat, and I have never named that on a podcast, but why not? And he was a brilliant teacher, and I think I took like two classes the, the first you know, semester of my sophomore year, two more the second. I, I took probably eight classes with him before I graduated, but I had to declare a major before my before the end of my sophomore year. And I went to talk to him. Really, he was a hard, you know what? I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. He was a he was kind of a hard ass. Sorry, bleep that out if you need to. And on the first exam of the semester, I had not only given the correct answer about how uh, the neur neuron system, neuronal system worked, I had also gone on to give like the next correct answers that he didn't ask because I was obsessed with this and my brain had just latched onto this and I wanted to show off. So um, I went to his office during office hours to ask him basically for some advice about whether I should major, double major, I was already an English major, or simply get a psych minor. And before I even spoke, other than to utter my question, he looked me up and down and declared that I should not major because I will never do anything with a psychology degree. I was 19, blonde, big boobs and didn't realize how hot I was. I also didn't realize that he was being a chauvinist. And if I could go back in time, I, I certainly wish I had opened my mouth and said, but would you say that to a man? 
Yeah, he deserves a slap at least. He totally does. Um, but at the time, I didn't know any better. And also, I had been grown up, I had grown up sort of being doubted for most of my life. I was told that I wasn't working up to my full potential. Um, my mother's mental illness, substance abuse, continued to um, unravel. In fact, right before I started Georgetown, she told me that she had tried to kill herself and it was my fault. And this would just be the first of many. So um, once again, there's that imperfect essence carrying on. I, imperfect feet, imperfect psych major, imperfect daughter. Um, and at the time I knew it was crazy pants, but it still hurt to hear her say it. So I, I became a psych major. I eventually broke up with the narcissistic boyfriend, although I, everyone I've dated since has been a narcissist of one sort or another, so go figure. I like to call it same asshole, different body. And I ended up doing research for the uh, NIH, National Institute of Health and Child and Family Development. From there, I went on to graduate school where I met my husband my first year there and immediately upon meeting him informed one of my good friends that I had met the man I was going to marry. And I was correct, although in retrospect, he was five years older and he seemed more fun at the time than he would grow into. And he said, I seemed more subservient, although it kind of makes no sense considering the whole reason I majored in psych was because someone told me not to. And my senior year of high school, myself and several other newspaper writers, we had all had these columns for the, the Hoya, the um, bi-weekly newspaper, it came out twice a week. And because we had never been editors, they denied us the ability to have a farewell column our senior year. So we stole the templates to the, to the newspaper and put out a fake one, none of which strikes me as subservient uh, in nature. I proceeded to sort of stumble along the way. I had many more back issues of de you know, debilitating pain. I've considered surgery more times than I can count. I really feel like the, the staff at the uh, Limbrook Open MRI, which is five minutes from my house, sort of helped raise my children because everyone I would go, every time I would go, I would go with them in tow. And I, you know, I was enjoying what I was doing. I, it turns out I don't like babies, so motherhood was an interesting choice for me. And also despite my excessive training, uh, besides the doctorate, I also received some postdoc education. Uh, it's analytic training. It's like more Freudian, lie on the couch and you know, come three to five times a week. I had to have 500 hours of four times a week or more therapy in order to get this degree. And so I, despite all this, somehow I was not able to recognize my own postpartum depression and anxiety. Um, fortunately, I had a good support system and my children grew up and once they learned to talk, everything was fantastic. My, um, my daughter, when she was eight weeks old, she had a seizure and we found out she had meningitis, which was once again amusing because 
I had listened, like I'm, I have this fantasy of marrying my pediatrician. He is a 80 year old Orthodox grandfather. But definitely during the first year of my son's life, I probably saw him more than my son because of, or more than my husband because of my own anxiety. And yet with the second one, I felt a little better. I listened to the rules. She didn't really leave the house. My son, you know, washed and pureled his hands and um, face, probably not his face, but that's my recollection. When he came back into the house and she never even made it into the nursery school because the doctor had suggested we don't. And yet when she was eight weeks old, we ended up in the hospital with meningitis for a seizure. And I think that's the point that I A, lost my mind and realized that life isn't perfect. I am imperfect. And sometimes we just have to go where life takes us. It took us on a hell of a ride, actually. The same week my mother-in-law dropped dead in the library out of nowhere, we came home to find my cat having a seizure. My cat of 14 years. and realized that the cat had cancer and it didn't even matter what time, what kind, because it had metastasized by this point. Uh, that was a one year period where my aunt went to jail for Medicare fraud, which she is not capable of committing because she's just not that clever. My, I mean, she wasn't clever enough to plead, you know, take a plea deal. So I don't think she was clever enough to set up this intricate scheme. My best friend moved out of town because she went to go live with her now husband. And my childhood friend, the boy that I was going to marry as per our parents that had grown up together, abruptly fell into a coma caused by some sort of bronchitis and never woke up and essentially was, you know, uh, he went to hospice and he passed. Oh my gosh. I know, right? Uh, during this time, I actually wrote a novel that I was fortunate enough to, um, I, I entered, uh, like I said, I'm imperfect. So I found, well, I was sending my aunt copies of Cosmo magazine because she wanted it for jail. There was a box you checked where for five extra dollars, you got what, a copy as well. And so, well, yeah, Cosmo magazine. Haven't read it since I was like 15 because you're a boy, but trust me, that's how it works. Like teen is for 11 year olds and 17 is for like 13 and Cosmos for 15. You just don't know what a blowjob is. So go figure. So I happened to see in the Cosmo that I, that they had a writing contest going on and I had been writing this book to deal with my, you know, ultimate sadness over everything going on in my world. And so I entered an excerpt and right after I sent it, I realized I had imperfectly entered the wrong excerpt. <laughs> um, and so in 2014, I won the first ever Cosmo fiction contest. And then unfortunately, the woman who called me to tell me about my winning was Australian, but one of my best friends is British. And I thought she was putting me on because she knew that I was waiting to hear from Cosmo. And so <laughs> it was a very awkward, congratulations, you won contest with a conversation. You're not a real person. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Alex, stop it. But the woman is lovely. Her name is Angela Ledgerwood. I don't think she ever really understood what was so confusing, but it was fantastic. From this, I did get an excellent fiction agent. Never found a publisher, not yet anyway. And then I... Well, I threw out my back two years ago during the summer because I decided to learn to surf. 
a writer friend asked me to take a look at her self-help book that she had written. And I, whoops, accidentally became a self-help book writer because I realized that the thoughts she had could be backed by science and I was the science geek. And so we started working on it two years ago. It's been in publication and edits and all this long nonsense ever since. And about 14 months ago, probably 13 almost to the day, the kids in my town started killing themselves. And so, as it turns out, someone who has grown up with a threat and promise and execution of suicide is actually better equipped to handle suicidal teens. And so I accidentally became the suicidal teenage expert in town. <laughs> wow, that's pretty heavy though. It is pretty heavy, but here's the thing. If you spend all your time talking about how heavy it is, you're just sort of further adding on to the burden of hopelessness and helplessness and the fear that things will never get changed, never get better, never change that these teens already have. Um, it's called Beck's Triad of Depression, and I find that it fits very aptly with almost everyone. It's, you know, we tend to think that our current situation is our only situation. And I think, although, I, you know, I, I am the uh, imperfect accidental story, I don't think I've ever believed that my current situation is my only situation because I've learned to change it. I transferred schools. I decided on my major, despite this man that I worshiped his advice. And although I never thought I would work with suicidal teens, when I realized I had a knack for it, I figured why not? <laughs> yeah, I can relate. I, I'm bipolar and that, you know, one time or another I have considered suicide. And I'm so thankful that I never followed through with it. Uh, my brother did follow through with his suicide in, in 1982, and that was very traumatic. And I'm so, so that's sorry. The, that's one of the yeah. things that, you know, kind of kept me living was I didn't want to repeat what he had. Yeah, and to be clear, like, I laugh about it. I say it jokingly because at some point the looks of, oh, poor you got too much for me to handle. Uh, my mother has... She once drove into a liquor store. Now, fortunately, in Florida, they're not glass, they're steel. Like, it's like a steel building. And so she didn't get very far. She has also slit her wrists, and as the police were carrying her away, she started yelling that my father had done this to her. At this point in my life, I can look at this as either sad or the kind of thing you, you gotta laugh at because I don't know, because sometimes I need laughter to get me through, you know? So I don't mean to be making light of it. It's just that my personal survival skill has been, uh, one, I tend to attract orphans of some sort, literal or physical, and two, or I'm sorry, literal or figurative, and two is I, I need to find a way to laugh through this all because there's some things I'm not gonna be able to change. Right, you don't wanna be down yourself when you're needed to help right can i ask you a little bit about what's thank god but what's what stopped you from completing the act well i, I was diagnosed finally as a bipolar and 
uh, the medication is what is what keep is keeping me alive. But I would drive to, on my way to work looking for ways to run off the road and make it look like an accident and things like that. Cause I didn't want my family to go through what we went through with my brother, but I, I still wanted to die. So, I, you know, I was looking for ways that would make it look like it was out of my hand. It wasn't something that I'd done personally, you know, to myself, but something that an accident. So, and, and when I finally started getting the right medication is when I, you know, I snapped out of it and realized that, Oh my God, you know, how close was I? To actually following through with something, so I'm very fortunate that I, you I, I really was, are, yeah. yeah, was diagnosed and and after all the different medication, going up and down with different types of medications, finally found the right ones and I've been on a regime for the past ten years, which have kept kept me pretty at keel. Uh, uh, can I ask if your brother was he older or younger? He was my older brother. He was 24 at the time. And he had a, he had a lot of things going on with him. He was a drug addict, uh, which was weird because we you know he shot himself, and we always thought that was strange because he is a drug addict that he would OD. You know, you would think think that I would. I mean, not yeah. that I would, but I mean, let's take the easy way out. But um, I mean, well, I you may... he, he wanted to make sure that it happened. I guess is why he chose a gun. Well, that's the thing. Women attempt more, men complete more, and it's because of the tool. This is a morbid discussion, but I appreciate us having it because I don't often get to talk about this in such a way. And I, I am going to be talking about it more and more. We, we mention, we'll mention it whenever, but I have, uh, I'm not looking to promo self promo at this time, but I do have this book coming out and it is lovely. It's called 10 steps to finding happy, but if I could do it all over again and thank God my co-author doesn't listen to podcasts. She only listens to Howard Stern. So whatever um but uh so i could say whatever i want and neither did my parents so that has been really freeing finding yeah. a voice to t- speak my truth that i wasn't able to before but so i am already set on the net i've already started writing the next book about suicidal teens and it's intended to be for teens and their parents and i'm only a few chapters in because i've got a lot going on with this book coming out but I'm really excited about that. And I, that's like, my dream is to get traction on that and actually talk to people in a way that makes a difference. Um, but in 10 Steps to Finding Happy, it's myself, my co-author, and and by the way, both of us have struggled with depression or depressive moments or whatever. Let's say, I guess a year and a half ago, two years ago, at some point when we were working on this, my husband got diagnosed with cancer. And I called her and I was like, I am too depressed to meet. And she had just had something happen, you know, in her personal life. And we both sort of laughed about the fact that we're writing a book on happiness <laughs> and we're too depressed to meet. Fortunately, my husband is fine as long as I keep making him go to the doctor. He takes shitty care of himself. But but um, it's the two of us and 24 expert writers talking about uh how they have found happiness how they define happiness i have a sorry i guess this is a little self promo but i'm going somewhere with this i have a woman who works in a palliative care children's setting so these are children that are going to die and you know that from the beginning because otherwise they wouldn't be in palliative care and she's a dance and movement therapist and so she finds a way to provide joy for these children 
despite knowing the end of the story. And I don't know that I ever could. I mean, I would like to think I could, but it's amazing to, to read her experience. Uh, there is also a, a friend that I've known for, Jesus, like 21 years now. And before the age of 28, 29, 30, she was diagnosed twice with different kinds of cancer. Uh, went through the whole regime and she's now the mother of twin boys and she has you know a renewed appreciation about life but not in like a cheesy you know kitschy way but more in a what is worth my time what is worth my investment and, and what do I need to get upset about um, and then the reason I bring this all up is I actually convinced one of my patients who um is bipolar by the time i met him he was he's as fine as anyone could imagine to be but but in his, you know i asked him to participate in this book i realized apa it's not super cool but um it was important for him to tell his story because he went so far as to get uh electroshock therapy electroconvulsive therapy yeah ect treatments and there are times in his life that he doesn't remember. There'll be times that he runs into people and he can't remember them, but he met them during the course of his treatment. And he really talks about the, I mean, he was a severe case. He had, you know, homicidal thoughts, suicidal thoughts, visual hallucinations, audio hallucinations. And yes, he tried every sort of medicine. And yes, he tried the ECT and he was in therapy and has been with me for I think eight years and then previously with other people, but his uh, lifeline to hold on to turned out to be extreme exercise, like Ironman competitions, triathlons, something where his when his body moved, his brain didn't have to. I'm a proponent of medicine because I've seen it do wonders. If I was only medicine, I would have gone to get my doctorate but uh you know it's just amazing it's an amazing story to listen to and I know everyone's story is not as extreme as his but it it moved me and it moved me hearing it and editing his piece was interesting because I've spent years talking to him and I could ask him for a little more or a little less or a little um oh and this was my first attempt at editing obviously because I didn't get my farewell column in 99 and so I had to steal the templates. So it was enjoyable. I like editing for the same reason I like therapy because I like pulling pulling the truth out of people. Not in a invasive way, but in, uh, in a helpful way, I would like to think. Did you know that a man once jumped into a bulletproof window so much that he busted it out of the frame and fell to his death? I do. Hey, I'm Nicholas Howe, and I made an improvised comedy storytelling podcast about this death and many others. Using a multiverse of me's as the catalyst, I explore the various ways people have died. I also have special guests on and freak them out about how dangerous the world is. Did you know lakes can explode? You do now. Listen to the How Will I Die podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at H-W-I-D-I-E-P-O-D. Um, our book, 10 Steps to Finding Happy, A Guide to Permanent Satisfaction, and let me just say, if I had it to do it all over again, it would have been called 10 Steps to Finding Happier. 
period. I have never told my co-author that because again, doesn't listen to podcasts, but um, I, this is, so the official release date is March 20th in association with the uh, United Nations International Day of Happiness. We did get their like stamp of approval. And so I think that stamp is somewhere on our book, which is cool and it makes me sound badass. But when I really, oh, um, on March 18th, we are doing a book launch at a, an aerospace museum in Long Island called the Cradle of Aviation Museum. Thankfully, one of our guest writers, her husband works there. And so we have been gifted at this location. We have also so far been gifted food, drink, and I have been reaching out to authors all over the world. I don't know if you have, do you have children? No, I don't. Okay, so I have a nine and 11 year old and I basically went on our towns, the Hewlett-Woodbeer Public Library System. There's an amazing woman there called Carolyn Lynch. I should give her a shout out, not that she'll ever hear this, but she has always, you know, suggested books to my children and she devotes her whole life to children and reading and she's amazing. And so I have been spending the last week, besides cleaning up vomit from my children, because it's been a fun week of stomach bugs, um, reaching out to authors and quite literally begging them to donate an autographed copy of their book in a you know, in an attempt to support mental health awareness and also possibly prevent teen suicide. And I'm trying to use these raffle items, as I like to call them, as a reason to get people into this room because it's a big room and I don't want to be alone. And I just want to talk about something important with people who are forced to listen to me. So fortunately, we've got the alcohol, we've got the room. I'm sure there's locks on the doors. And I've been amazed that all of the, uh, not all of the, there's a small percentage of authors that I have reached out to that have strongly and firmly supported me. And they actually tend to be the older authors who are, I mean, literally 60s, 70s, 80s, who are shocked and appalled that the younger ones aren't helping to support my plight. But that will be March 18th. And then on March 20th, I have this vision. And Michael, you will send me your address after this, please. Because I have this vision of creating like a social media storm of, of all of us or as many of us or our cats or our wine glasses or our martinis or your warm, cozy fireplace, a picture of that with this postcard I've created and the hashtag 10 steps and the stigma so that we reach one person who feels less alone. Absolutely, I'll do whatever it takes. Uh, then I need your address, stalking begins. It's funny, because this is kind of the scariest thing I've ever done, but I also, there's also a, uh, uh, what the heck, you still haven't said it whether I can swear, so I'm just- Oh, you can't, go ahead, don't worry oh, about good. it. Oh, good, there's a what, there, to me, there's like a what the fuck mentality to this because I spent a lot of my life trying to be the good girl and that didn't work because that wasn't what my family needed. We needed an identified patient, a bad kid. And so that kind of was me, even though I've done okay for myself. So I have reached out, I just reached out to Jody Picoult's agent right before we hopped on. And do I think Jody Picoult, who is like my idol, is going to agree? No, but there's nothing to lose. And what if she did? You know, um, 
So that's been super powerful. And I want to make a difference. I want to save kids that I are not in my office because I can only see so many and only so many admit to needing help. And then also to be frank, I want to get some traction for the next book I want to write. I want to not be my own publicist because it is exhausting. <laughs> I send out hundreds of emails. I have spent thousands of dollars sending these postcards all over the country. Nope, all over the world. Because Canada, that is a confusing, they don't call it a zip code, but something else to figure out. And so at this point, I don't, in a way, listen, I still don't want to be thought of as fat. I still want my husband to tell me that I'm attractive. But I, I, I've run out of fucks to give for people that don't believe in the difference that I want to make. And that's kind of huge for me. So yes, I am very excited about this book. I am very excited about our 24 expert writers. I am excited about the venue and the caterer and all these people who have come forth. And I actually have 40, before we got on, I had 44 raffle donations. And some of them are authors that like, my kids would know, like my favorite librarian would know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna reach out to her after I get off and brag. What it comes down to is there's no, there's no harm in asking, there's no harm in trying. You know, I don't think I was ever supposed to graduate from Georgetown or get my doctorate or accidentally, depressingly find an agent and then accidentally stumbling across, um, you know, a, another writer who had no interest in self-help and I have never read a self-help book. And yet here we are and it all, I'm pretty sure I'm, quoting uh, Harry Potter's Dumbledore, but it all looks, like it all makes sense looking back. And um, yeah, I I want the big leagues for my next book. I want like an agent and a publisher and, because um, again, my agent is phenomenal, but only does uh, fiction. But I wanna at some point get to a point where I don't have to work so hard, although I don't know if my personality allows that to ever happen. Yeah, it's part of the control factor. It's part of the hypervigilance anxiety control. I have four interns and I don't actually, I've given them all tasks that I am then doing as well because I'm not sure I can trust them for no reason. They're amazing, but like, <laughs> you know, it's me. It's me trying to, I want it done right. And so it's tough to imagine someone else caring about this as passionately as I do. Well, I think I was going to ask you about your herniated disc. I'm concerned that you still have one. I do. I still have several. Problems. Um, I still have several. I, it actually turns out I have degenerative disc disease and um, spondyloliothesis um, and spinal stenosis, which basically means my shit is falling apart. The most interesting thing of all of those is the spondyloliothesis, or as like the cool kids call it, spondy, which basically means you know how people who have, um, damn it, I've lost the word now. It starts with an S. Some people's spines leans to the left or the right. And Scoliosis. Thank you. Um, so mine leans, spondyloliothesis is when it leads forward or backwards. Mine leads backwards, which means it is, um, it impedes my spinal cord and the fecal sac and all those pain receptors. So it still continues to suck, but I'm 
essentially I spent six months going from surgeon to surgeon and I realized that when all the best surgeons are telling you, get over it, you know, like this is not a surgical issue, you believe them. I was on um, opioids for probably four years. Uh, and then I just got to a point where I couldn't mom the way I wanted to on opioids. And I never went back to the doctor and they called me and I just explained if I, if I go back to you for my monthly refill, I'm going to walk out with something and I don't know if I have the strength to stop. Well, that's brave. Uh, that's something that's not an easy task to, to get off of opioids, especially if they've been helping you. Yeah, but you know what? They help you, but it's also you need them more and more. So, Right. I've got a, a podcast I do with a friend of mine, Scott H. Silverman, called Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour. He's an expert on addiction and recovery over 30 years sobriety. And uh, we talk a lot about the opioid epidemic and how it's it's just out of hand. But anyway, yeah. So it's so that's something that's on my mind recently because we just started it. We only have three episodes in. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a scary thing what people are going through with opioids. I mean, they get on it because they need it. And then they get to a point where they can't stop. And yeah, I, I think for me, I could have stopped. I just really liked it. It's kind of nice to have your brain turned off, you know? Well, it was helping you. So, I mean, that's, that means something. You, you want to, you, you want some relief, especially with the condition or conditions that you have that are apparently not operable. I mean, what else do you have to do? What what else can you do? So how are you managing your pain now? Uh, whiskey? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, honestly, I, I make a point of being more active. I have a bunch of anti-inflammatories. I also try not to attend to it as much because I think there is an attentional component, which is not to say it's all in my head. It's just to say that I don't know what it's to say. Like, I understand that if I wear high heels, I may look sexy for two hours, but I'm in pain for two weeks, you know? And this is my burden to bear. And there's a lot of cool things I have to bear and a lot of not cool things. So, for example, um, actually two days ago, two days ago, yesterday, whatever it was, I started... I love the expression spiraling, even though I hate the expression triggering, but I started spiraling, spiraling so hard about this book launch and whether people would actually show up that I felt spasms in my back. You know, I asked my son to get me an ice pack. I laid down and I just had to laugh because that's the brain body connection, you know, and it's huge. Well, we still don't understand what all the brain can do. I mean, it's something, it's a, something that's what well, we, we just don't understand uh, because the, the research I, I imagine and you know we've only figured out maybe 25 percent of what we're able what we're capable of so I, I believe in almost willing yourself to feel better or willing yourself to you know to you know they they say sometimes that you know you know if you're depressed just snap snap out of it and I hate that expression because it's not something you really have control over but you can still put yourself in a positive frame of mind if possible, and that would help. Um, this is true. It's funny, I, a few, so I am too old for um, Instagram and Snapchat, probably much like you are, but I had this great idea because I realized that most of my teenage patients watch makeup tutorials on Instagram, and so I 
I, one day I went online and I had just gotten out of the shower and I basically discussed the 10, uh, 10 things not to say to someone who's depressed while I was putting on my makeup. So if you had the sound off, it looked like a makeup tutorial. And then number 10 was you don't look depressed. And my point was like, I've gone from shit to Shinola, if that's a real word, I got it from my grandfather, you know, like uh, in the, in the. 15 minute discussion, I made up my face, made up my hair. I looked a lot more presentable and a lot less depressed than I would have otherwise. Like you can cover things up with makeup. I wasn't depressed at the time. This was about a month ago, but I just wanted to make a point of explaining to parents, friends, people all over not to, you know, the things that were not helpful to say. Okay. Uh, let's let's talk about your podcast. You never let us know what the title is. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. It is called the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. It was started on a whim. A very good friend of mine who I worship and one day plan to run off to the Isle of Lesbos with her once we discover when it is, where it is and when it opens. Sharon Sapir at Sapir Nutrition. She is a nutritionist. We met because she was my nutritionist. And then it became apparent that I don't listen to directions. So I was not going to be losing weight at all. Um, but we were, you know, sort of bantering. And this other woman says, you guys should start a podcast. And I had just recently been introduced to podcasts. And so we, uh, to me, I'm a weird starting point. I'm like, well, what's the name? You know, like, not what's our point, just what's our name. And within two weeks, we were recording on her phone using the Anchor app, but literally recording on speakerphone, which, Michael, I understand how offensive that is to us all now, but at the time, I didn't understand anything. <laughs> um, and then we got some guests to come on our show, fluke guests, I suppose, uh, successful LA women who were talking about dating and whatnot. And both of them were like, we had a great time talking to you. Do you guys know anything about sound editing? <laughs> and we did not. So we started looking into it and we, uh, we got ourselves a sound editor. We got mics, we got headphones, we figured out all these things. And then in we started in March and then in November we had a, a little disagreement that turned into something greater. And essentially we realized that we were heading in different directions. Mind you, she's still one of my favorite people. Our children love each other. Our eldest might get married to each other. And we are, you know, but like we have a play date set for tomorrow if my son isn't puking. So essentially she wanted to talk about nutrition and I wanted to talk about mental health and stuff that makes people uncomfortable. And so we were interviewing, there's this guy, Cody Taggart. He is in LA. He is super smoking hot. He is in his early thirties. So I feel like I get to hit on him because he's so much younger than I am. And then I make a joke about it, but he was sharing his story about a time when he was so close to suicide. He had a gun in his mouth and I wanted to talk about that more and it, somehow it turned into self-esteem and my lovely bestest of bestest Sharon says, well, how does that factor into your self-esteem when it comes to, you know, 
working out and personal appearance. And my brain clicked and went, nope, this isn't gonna work. And a couple weeks later, her brain clicked as well. And so now I have my own podcast, which was scary. And I had to ask several people if I could, can I wing this shit? And the answer I got was yes. And so far I love it because instead of talking to mostly Instagram moms, you know, with huge followings or mostly um, people that appeal to both of us, I make it a point to talk about things that make us uncomfortable. I've talked about the difference between momming while black and momming while white. And yes, I did ask, should I say black or should I say African-American? Her answer was black. That does not mean everyone's answer is black. I have also discussed what it's like to lose a child. Um, I'm an amazing new friend I've made. She is very religious. She chose to keep her child despite knowing that the end result was not going to be good. And we've had our ups and downs because I... uh, Her religion is new to me. I was not aware that goddamn is like the worst thing you could ever say. And so it's a learning experience. And every once in a while, she sends me Bible verses. And sometimes they really hit home, although I'm a Jew. So Bible verses are, they mean something different to me. You know, um, soon I will be podcasting with someone who has HIV, but has been undetectable for so long that it is not untransmittable. And to me, as a child of the 80s, this is now 42, I didn't even know that was a thing. I thought we were still afraid of that. And although we should be cautious, there's a lot less fear now, or there should be, than there was then. So this has become my baby to to do with it as I please and to shed light on things that I guess I wish I had the courage to shed light on when I was younger. Hi. I'm Lindsay Wisner from the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. I'm a psychologist, an author. It's in the kitchen. Neurotic Nourishment is a podcast for smart, sweary women. Neurotic Nourishment is a podcast where smart, sweary women can talk about real issues that matter. The truth is. Neurotic Nourishment is a podcast where smart, sweary women talk about shit that matters. The truth is, no matter what we accomplish in our professional lives, for better or worse, we are always moms first. Mom. <sighs>